Our passage this morning is Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. Judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Glorious God and Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy to us in Christ. Lord, we praise you that you have called us out of darkness into your light. You've called us out of rebellion into your worship. Lord, we praise you as those who are the recipients of your grace, that you would help us, Lord, to be the givers of your grace. Lord, help us out of the grace that we have received from you to extend grace to others. Lord, help us not to judge according to the flesh, but help us, Lord, to judge right judgment. Lord, help us to judge according to your holy standard. Help us, Lord, to judge correctly. Help us, Lord, to judge carefully and mercifully. Lord, so that we can show ourselves to be true disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a popular television program called Judge Judy, and it features Judy Scheindlin, a former prosecution lawyer and Manhattan family court judge. And on the program, people sign an agreement to have their cases settled on television. Now, there's all kinds of bizarre cases on the show, from, from someone claiming that they were assaulted with Tupperware to the woman who took her sister's car without asking and hit a deer and then tried to make amends by offering some of the venison to her sister. Or the person who was in the process of breaking a television at a party and accidentally dropped it on a cat, killing it. You can't make this stuff up. Well, actually, in that last case, you can make it up because it later came out that these people had actually made up the story about the cat and the TV in order to win a free trip to L.A. In order to, and to get money from the producers. But this show has been on the air since 1996. For 25 years, this show has been on TV. It's won Emmy, Emmy Awards. Judy, Judy Scheinlin is the highest paid television star in America. She earns $47 million a year. Now, I remember watching that show years ago. I, I can't stand that show. It, it, it gives me the twitches. Judge Judy's bread and butter is being mean to people. She calls the plaintiffs and defendants stupid. She calls them morons. Here's one typical quote. I eat morons like you for breakfast. You're going to be crying before this is over. Or here's another. Do you feel as if you're getting whipped? She laughs. You sure are. 
I think a better name for this program than Judge Judy would be Judgmental Judy. Now, I've wondered why people like this program. I think in part it's because people like to look down on the plaintiffs and the defendants. It gives them a feeling of of self-righteousness. But I think another big part of the program is that they tune in because, because Judge Judy is judgmental. And so it caters to their own judgmental nature. Judge Judy gets to say things that they wish that they could say. And Judge Judy's court, people in Judge Judy's court, have no choice but to submit to her and to her rulings. People want to be judgmental. People who think judgmentally want that kind of authority. They want to be able to say whatever they want and to judge others with impunity. But sadly, this kind of behavior is too often on display in the church. Imagine a church full of judgmental Judies. I've seen it. It's not pretty. I've been a judgmental Judy. It's downright ugly. But we don't want this, do we? we? We want to be different. We don't want to be judgmental. We want to follow Jesus. Well, Luke 6, verses 37 to 42 is a continuation of what Jesus has already been teaching in the Sermon on the Plain. Remember that Jesus, Jesus is primarily addressing his disciples. Verse 20, he's describing the behavior of true disciples. This type of behavior, being non-judgmental, is the behavior of true disciples. This is the ethic of the kingdom of God. Not being judgmental is an expression of love. It's an expression of mercy. It's an expression of God's character, as we saw in verse 36. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I've heard many people use verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged, as a hammer when you talk to them about sin, especially in the context of evangelism. They'll point the finger at you and say, judge not, lest you be judged, conveniently neglecting the fact that they themselves are in that moment actually making a judgment. Does this passage say that we are not to judge ever? Quite the opposite. In fact, this passage is telling us to judge. This this passage is telling us not to judge in a fleshly way, but rather to judge with righteous judgment. This passage's message is embodied in Jesus' statement from John 7, 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So in Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42, Jesus is telling us to judge. In verses 37 and 38, Jesus is saying, judge others mercifully. In verses 39 and 40, judge teachers meticulously. And in verses 41 to 42, judge yourself mercilessly. So first of all, in in verses 37 and 38, judge others mercifully. In this section, these two verses, Jesus is presenting two positives and two negatives. Judge not and condemn not, and give and forgive. And he says that each of these will produce a result that corresponds to the behavior being exhibited. Again, obedience here reveals the character of a true disciple. So the first two are judge not and condemn not. Well, like I said a moment ago, Luke 6.37 is one of the most familiar and most misapplied verses in Scripture. You may have heard Paul Washer. People tell me, judge not lest ye be judged. 
He says, I always tell them, twist not scripture, lest you be like Satan. Sometimes scripture tells us to judge, and sometimes scripture tells us not to judge. So how can we know when we're to judge and when we're not supposed to judge? Scripture. We need to consider scripture in its proper context. Again, in this passage, Jesus is not teaching people or telling people not to judge. Nor is Jesus speaking against the law courts, except perhaps Judge Judy. Nor is he speaking against making an assessment of what is right and what is wrong. You judge what's right and what's wrong. You must judge what's right and what's wrong. People make these sorts of judgments all the time. Now, this, this, in this context of, of judge not, does, it does not mean being blind to what's wrong in others. But it, but it means don't deal with what's wrong wrongly. Jesus here is, is criticizing or judging the practice of being critical of others, of looking down on others, of condemning others. Jesus is criticizing and judging the sort of self-righteous judgment like the Pharisee versus the tax collector in Luke 18, verses 11 and 12, where the, the Pharisee prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I judge, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now this Pharisee here is actually thanking God in his self-righteousness. But the tax collector, on the other hand, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 13. And Jesus goes on to say that it is this man, it is this tax collector who went away justified rather than the Pharisee. When we engage in self-righteous judgment, it's as though we are, are, we are regarding ourselves as the standard of righteousness. We're forgetting that Jesus Christ is the only one who has met the proper standard. We're forgetting that there's not one category of sin that you and I have not committed. Not one of the Ten Commandments that you and I do not break regularly. That's really the key to overcoming the sin of being judgmental by, by considering the perfect standard of Christ by considering how far we fall short of that, and by realizing our own need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who, who exhibit self-righteous judgment will find themselves under the judgment and condemnation of God. In fact, they are revealing that they are under the, the judgment and condemnation of God. The Apostle Paul is very clear in Romans 2, 1-3. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge and practice such things and yet do them yourself, those who who practice those things yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Those whose lives are characterized by self-righteous judgment and the condemnation of others, especially for the sins that they themselves have committed, are revealing that they are not true disciples. They're revealing that they're still dead in their trespasses and sins. Well, the next two that Jesus talks about here in verse 37 are forgive and give. And so they're essentially saying the same thing as what we just saw in the first half of the verse, but in a positive form. Don't judge and condemn, rather forgive and give. 
And both of these are in the present tense imperative. They should be ongoing. They should be ongoing, continual behavior. Well, what does it mean to forgive others? Well, I talked about this extensively in my series on the, the model prayer. And this from the fifth petition from Matthew six twelve, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We forgive others since we have been forgiven. We forgive others since we have been forgiven our debts. Forgiving others is an essential part of God's will being done. Forgiving others means that you are no longer holding the sin of someone else against them. Paul warns in Romans 10 verses 10 to 13, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You're, you're refusing to be right. Sorry, we all stand before the, the judgment seat of God. And so what you're saying here is that, that you are refusing the right to be angry about the other person's sin. You're refusing the right to talk about it. You're refusing the right to dwell on it in your mind. Instead, you are committing to love them. You're committing to pray for them. You're committing to seek God's best for them. As I mentioned last week, theologians are divided on whether we should forgive conditionally or unconditionally. In other words, whether someone needs to, be, needs to repent in order to be forgiven. I talked about this even from the, the, in my illustration at the beginning last week about Corey Ten Boom. But, but now time is not going to allow me to develop this further today, but I, I do believe that we should forgive unconditionally. That we should really forgive regardless of the other person and, and what they do as those who have been forgiven by God. And we see the examples of, of Jesus doing this in the crucifixion. We see the example of Stephen doing this as in the process of being stoned. He says, he says, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. Now, these people did not repent. So then, what does Jesus mean when he says, forgive and you will be forgiven? What does Jesus mean here? It, we, are, we know that we're forgiven by God unconditionally, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But there really, there seems to be a condition attached here, doesn't there? Forgive and you will be forgiven. Well, this is not conditional forgiveness. Thomas Watson warns that, that our forgiving others is not the cause of God's forgiving us, but it is a condition without which he will not forgive us. If we hold on to unforgiveness in our hearts, it's like saying, I don't want to be forgiven by God, or I don't need to be forgiven by God. But the reality is that forgiven people are forgiving people. Whereas unforgiving people are not, forgiving, are not forgiven people. Disciples forgive because disciples are forgiven. Well, as we move on now to the command to give in, in verse 38. This is again, this is related to the, the concept of forgiveness, but it, it's like putting wheels on forgiveness. It, it, it goes beyond not judging. It goes beyond not condemning. It goes beyond forgiving. It's like the golden rule, he says from, from uh, Luke 6.31. It seeks the positive good of others. For a negative example here, think of, of Nabal. Many of us read about Nabal this past week in 1 Samuel 25. Nabal, who foolishly refused to give, to give food to David's men and instead actually railed on them. If you remember the story, David was tempted to take matters into his own hands and send his men and, and kill Nabal and everything and everyone that he had. But, but David was dissuaded by 
Nabal's wife, Abigail. And so instead, Nabal was punished by God, being struck dead by God. So that's a negative example. That's of not giving. Well, the positive example, probably the, one of the, the, the clearest ones I can see in the Old Testament, is that of Ruth who demonstrated her faithfulness by leaving her own people, her own land, and her old religion, and going with Naomi back to Jerusalem, saying, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So Ruth was faithful to Naomi, and she was faithful to God. And Ruth was then subsequently blessed by God. In fact, Ruth really provides a clear example of what Jesus uses as an illustration here in verse 38. Give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So when, when grain was measured out in that culture, someone would hold out the fold of their garment and the grain would be poured out and then it would be shaken so it would settle down and then they would fill up the proper measure in the garment. Now, with, in, Ruth, in Ruth 3 verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, Boaz gave Ruth six measures of, of barley, pouring them into her garment. She's a, an example, she's an illustration of what it means to be blessed in giving to others. But the kind of blessing that, that Jesus is talking about here is not karma. The universe is not giving to you. It comes from God. And God doesn't give just grain. God gives us grace. God gives us grace. And so Jesus is saying here that, that as you do these things, as you, as, you don't, uh, as, you, as you don't judge wrongly, as you don't condemn, as you forgive, and as you give, you'll receive a blessing from God. A blessing in kind with the, the blessing that you have sought to give to others. But in fact, the reality is that the blessing that we receive is infinitely greater than anything we could ever mete out to others. The blessing that we receive comes from God. We receive God's grace. And it's not wrong to seek God's, God's reward. It's wrong to seek the reward that people can give, but it's not wrong to seek the reward from God. The gracious and the merciful are storing up rewards in heaven. And the greatest reward that we can have in this life, and especially in life to come, is our relationship with God. God is the reward that the disciple seeks. So then in summing up this first point, we are to judge, but we are to judge others mercifully, not self-righteously. But as the recipients of God's mercy and God's grace, we seek to extend God's mercy and God's grace to others as a demonstration of our love for God and our love for others. Second, we're to judge teachers meticulously. We're to judge teachers meticulously, verses 39 and 40. Again, obedience to what Jesus is teaching here requires judgment. It requires judgment. Here, Jesus speaks of judging teachers, of determining whether an individual is the kind of teacher that ought to be followed. Disciples must judge teachers meticulously. They must judge carefully and wisely. Jesus makes his point here with a parable. But before we go into it, let's just consider briefly what a parable is. We'll be looking at a lot of parables in Luke's Gospel account. In fact, Luke's Gospel account is really known for its parables. 
Well, the word parable is a transliteration from Greek. It, it originally meant setting beside. And so, so a parable then is a, a literary um, device and as a rhetorical device is a comparison. It's a comparison. And we see many parables in the Synoptic Gospels where they, they are a pr primarily a short saying combined with a comparison or a figure of speech. Parables are often introduced with the word like, as we'll see next week. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them is like the man who built, who building a, a house, who dug deep and then laid the foundation on the rock. Luke 6, verses 47 and 48. Or Luke 13, 18 and 19. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed. These are parables. And as you can see from these two examples, parables illustrate an aspect of Jesus' teaching using, using elements that are familiar to his hearers. Often nature and human relationships. And by, by drawing these things and by using these as illustrations, Jesus is making a very clear point to his disciples. Now we're going to get into the interpretation of parables later as we look into some of the more complex examples, but, but this one's pretty straightforward. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not fall, both fall into a pit? Jesus here is asking two rhetorical questions. The blind person is often a metaphor describing a person who is without faith or without wisdom. As I mentioned from the outset, Jesus is emphasizing the importance of seeking faithful, wise teachers. And so the point that Jesus is essentially asking is, who are you going to follow? Who are you going to follow? Now the key point, although not explicitly, explicitly stated, is you must follow me. This will become clear again next week when we get to verses 47 and 48 that I mentioned a moment ago. Jesus is speaking of those who hear and obey him, of true disciples. Jesus is the ultimate teacher. We follow him and we follow those who follow him. Like Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And when Paul's death was imminent, he encouraged Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So we follow Jesus by following those who follow Jesus. Well, now, many years later, 2,000 years later, we follow Christ as those who followed Christ, the apostles, and we follow those who follow those who follow Christ, pastors and teachers. And if you follow Jesus and follow those who follow Jesus, you will become like Jesus. But if you follow those who don't really follow Jesus, you're going to fall into a ditch. Twice, as a young believer, I was led down the wrong road by false teachers whose teachings were more cultish than Christian. These men used the Bible. Now, most cult leaders do that, but they used it out of context. And as a young Christian, I didn't know the Word of God enough to, to refute error or to, to cause me to run the other direction. And this became a snare for me. But beloved, if you want to avoid false teachers, watch their words and watch their works. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 
Now, in Matthew, Jesus tells this parable in another context, where he refers to the Pharisees as blind guides. Uh, Matthew 15, 14. Jesus was saying that false teachers were like wolves in sheep's clothing. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening, ravenous wolves. But you will know them by their fruits. We'll get into that next week. Of course, there is no perfect teacher apart from Christ. Now again, the teachings in Scripture are perfect because they are inspired and they are inerrant, they are authoritative. But when it comes to the individuals, we can see that even the apostles had their faults. Right? We see Peter rebuked by the apostle Paul publicly because of his sin. We see that, that Paul testifies that he is the chief of sinners. These men, although they were inspired apostles, they are still sinful. They're still servants of God like you and me. Every teacher is going to have blind spots. But consider what they say, the, the, the body of their work. Consider what their, their character Consider, consider the body of their works. Don't just consider what a teacher says. Think about the way they, they say it. Think about their character. Think about the characteristics of a disciple. Jesus is describing here in the Sermon of the Planet, a disciple is one who, who exhibits love. He's one who is non-judgmental, who's humble. And so think about some of the... the Men who influence you in your life. Are they, are they proud? Are they arrogant? Again, think about word and work. Because for good or for ill, you will be like him. Verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Those who follow false teachers will be in danger of making false judgments. False judgments of what is right and wrong, and false judgments about other people. In Matthew, Jesus uses this same statement in another context, that of, of sending out the apostles. In John, he teaches it again at the Last Supper as he presents the example of washing one another's feet, John 13, 16. So clearly this, this principle, this, this statement has many applications. Jesus is saying here that the disciple becomes like the teacher. The disciple becomes like the teacher. Now, at the time when Jesus was teaching this, this sermon, the student's understanding was limited to what his teacher knew. There, were, there was no libraries. Books were extremely rare. Well, scrolls were extremely rare. They didn't have access to the internet. Now, times have changed. Now, in a, in a, in a moment, you can, you can have access to really almost the, the, the sum of, of human information. It's not always a good thing. But it can be used of God to really help you to grow. And I think about the fact that, 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 for, that you can actually go far beyond even what I know. It, it's, it can be a really good thing. But, but there's, there's another, again, more, more weighty application here, than, again, than just, just what, what's being taught. Again, the disciple will be like his teacher in character. It goes beyond head knowledge. 
individual will be the disciple will be like the teacher in love and mercy. Either they will be loving and merciful like their disciple, but like their teacher, or they will be unloving and unmerciful like their teacher. And so when it comes to Jesus, his disciples aim to be like him. Jesus' disciples aim to be like Jesus. Now, of course, we will invariably fall short, far short. At every point, we will fall short of this. And of course, this has a direct application for me. I'm going to get into this more in a moment. But in the ancient Near East, the disciple-teacher relationship was, was, not dependent just, was not dependent on books, but on personal instruction personal instruction. The, the, the disciple and the teacher would often live together in close proximity, spending copious amounts of time together. Now again, when we think of, of many of the teachers that we, that we have currently, especially those who you're, you're reading online or, or in books, you're not really spending any time with them as far as a, as a person. You're spending a lot of time with their words, but not any time with them. Be very careful who you listen to, and who you read. Beware of the danger of picking up a person's behavior and attitude and end up becoming a caricature, caricature of that person. I've seen many people pick up the theological and personality idiosyncrasies of their favorite online preachers. One of the challenges of relying on online personalities is that you don't really know them. Now, you might feel like you know them, but the relationship is only one way. It can't really be called a relationship. Now you know that I like mostly dead preachers. Not only do I feel it's important to read men from, from church history in order to avoid cultural blind spots, but, but I, I know that, that dead men aren't going to apostatize. I know that dead men aren't going to be scandalized but I still don't really know them. I'm not going to know John Owen. I'm not going to know Jonathan Edwards until glory. But one of the advantages of, of studying men like that is that there are good biographies out there. And you can actually learn a great deal about the character of these men through an objective biography. Now, just a little caveat and a warning here. You need to be careful because some biographers resort to hagiography of being uncritically positive in the writing, even embellishing details in order to exalt the subject of their book. Eric Metaxas's biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is an example of this. That Metaxas ignored many of Bonhoeffer's unorthodox and even heretical views, just left them out of his book, and in this he does not act like a careful historian. He's presenting really a caricature in a different way of what Bonhoeffer was really like. Well, let's, let's come back to me. Let's, let's judge me for a moment. I'm aware of my faults, at least some of them. Some of you are aware of many of my faults. But I, as a teacher, have a responsibility to meticulously judge myself. Teachers must judge themselves meticulously. 1 Timothy 4.16, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for so by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Watch your life and your doctrine. 
J.C. Rouse sees this as the main point of these two verses. He says, the main lesson of our Lord Jesus appears to be teaching here is to impress on ministers and teachers the importance of a consistent life. The passage is a solemn warning not to contradict by our lives what we have said with our lips. Now, I have the advantage of, of spending time in the Word throughout the week, and, and I've said this many times, but the first person that comes under the, the weight of what I am preaching on is me. The passage is working on my heart, and I, I realize and confess through the week, oh, wow, I fall short here. And the reality is I fall short at every point. We all do. But I have the advantage of being able to, to go a little ahead and to be able to, to, to do that work in the, and as the Spirit does the heart work on me in the text prior to coming to the proclamation of the Word. As I said a couple of weeks ago, I'm, I'm just a beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. But this does not mean that we can just pass over, I can just pass over faults. If I'm walking in a life that is, is characterized by blatant sin, or characterized, or, well, characterized by blatant sin, um, or, if I'm, or if I'm teaching something that is false that does not line up with God's word, then you as a church have a responsibility to, to come to me and to to challenge me, and you, you, you better know that Joshua and Vince are, are going to talk to me about this. If you feel you can't approach me about something, then please talk to them. Talk to one of them about my sin or, or my error. But I hope that I would be approachable on this. James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater, stri greater strictness. It's the same standard, but a stricter severity. Daryl Box says that if you try on your own to lead yourself and others spiritually, you are in danger. Jesus is warning against self-righteous and arrogance. Disciples are to make more disciples. But the, 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 the leader can, or the teacher cannot hope to act as a guide to others unless he himself sees where he is going. And if he is on the wrong track, the others are going to follow him on that track, and together they're going to end up in a ditch. Together they're going to end up shipwreck. I need to judge carefully, especially what I am teaching, to make sure that it is in accordance with the teaching of Jesus. Again, there is a strong link here between, uh, of the danger between following a false teacher and the danger of false judgment. Because a, a blind teacher, the idea of being a blind teacher now moves into the idea in verses 41 and 42 of being a blind helper. Blinded by their own sin, the teacher thinks he's on the right path, but he, he thinks he can help others, but he can't even help himself. So then finally, verses 41 and 42. Judge yourself mercilessly. In verse 41, Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Have you ever gotten something stuck in your eye? It really hurts. Tears roll down your face. It's all you could think about until you are able to flush it out. But imagine how difficult it would be to walk up to someone in that predicament someone who has a speck in their eye, and say, here, let me help you with that. 
while you have a 4x4 sticking out of your eye. It's insanity. You're, you're going you're gonna to damage the person. You're going to damage everything as you have this beam sticking out of your head. Jesus here is, is talking. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. Because when you have a 4x4 four four in your eye, everywhere you look, all you see is wood. All you see is wood. And so often the splinters that we see in everyone else's eyes are made of the same kind of wood as the 4x4 four four that is in our eye. It's the same kind of wood. You look at somebody and, and try to, to focus, somebody trying to focus the spotlight on themselves. You say, wow, look at that pride. All the while, not realizing the pride in your own statement. Or you complain about a judgment that somebody else has made, not realizing that you yourself are exhibiting unrighteous judgment. Again, we looked at, at Romans 2, 1 to 3. The one who passes judgment on another when they are doing the same thing themselves. And the reality is we all do it sometimes. We're, we're often quick to, to point out this, the faults of others while turning a blind eye to our own. Why is that? I think at least in part because it makes us feel better about ourselves and our sin. We want to take the other person down a few pegs, and so in so doing, raise ourselves up a few pegs in relation to them. We like to excuse our own behavior or our sin when we, when we say, I feel bad about it, or I'll do better next time. We judge others by their actions, but ourselves by our so-called good intentions. We assume the best of intentions when it comes to us and our own actions, but the worst when it comes to others. We're quick to make excuses for our own sin, but we don't allow any such excuses for others. There is no excuse for sin. Yours or mine. But while you're walking around with a 4x4 four four in your eye, you're never going to see clearly. Verse, two, verse 42. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. It appears righteous. You really want to help the person, right? Well, I think if you have a 4x4 four four in your eye and you're trying to help others, I don't think helping them is really your motivation. You want to help yourself. And again, you don't want to deal with your own sin, and so instead you deal with other people's sin. It's far easier to try to fix somebody else's problems than it is your own. Well, Jesus continues in the second half of verse 42. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to say, take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. I think the biggest 4x4 four four that many of us have to deal with is the 4x4 four four of pride. The reality is it's probably not just a 4x4. Four four. It's probably a 6x24, like the beams that are holding up this building. It blinds us to everything. Well, the best cure for pride and all forms of I-beam is the gospel. It's the gospel. 
So if we want to measure rightly and see clearly, we need to study God's word. We need to see what the Bible says about us. We need to see what the Bible says about Jesus. Those who go around judging others don't believe the gospel like they should. And if this is what their life is characterized by, then they should really be concerned whether they're truly disciples or not. But if you understand the gospel, if you understand that you have nothing to commend yourself to God, that you have no righteousness of your own whatsoever, when you understand the gospel, that your sins are so bad that nothing less than the death of Jesus Christ could pay for them, when you understand that your only true righteousness is in Christ, that your only true value is in Him, you have no need to tear down your others to make yourself feel better. You have no need to, to big note yourself in your own mind. When you understand the gospel, that Jesus died for that Christian that you're so busy judging, their value goes up in your mind as well. Remember that there is nothing you can do and nothing that you can believe that you are not enabled to do or believe because of God's work in your heart. Preach John 15, 5 to yourself that apart from Jesus, I could do nothing. Preach 1 Corinthians 4, 7 to yourself. What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? When you do this, you'll begin to see clearly. And God will then remove you, or sorry, God will then enable you to remove splinters from other people's eyes. Notice that in this passage, in verses 41 and 42, Jesus is not saying, Jesus is not saying that taking splinters out of other people's eyes is wrong. But first you need to judge yourself mercilessly so you can judge others mercifully. Jesus is here dealing with the hypocritical process of trying to remove splinters when we have logs in our own eye. First, take the log out, then deal with the speck in your brother's eye. And in order to do this, in order to be able to help others to remove specks from their eye, you need to be able to judge righteously. You need to judge with righteous judgment. So back in 37, if that was a verse commend, condemning all judgment, then you're unable to do the command that is here in verse 42. We are to judge with righteous judgment, to correct others for their good and ultimately for God's glory. And when the church is working as the church is meant to do, we will lovingly go to challenge one another for their sin and encourage one another when we see them walking in repentance and faith and giving glory to God. Now the reality is that, that removing specks from other people's eyes, it involves criticism. It involves criticism, but may it be in the context of love and grace and of recognizing the, the good that God is doing in other people's hearts. Think for a moment about the way that the Apostle Paul begins 1 Corinthians. I mentioned this this morning in, in, my, in, my, in my brief message that the way that, that that church in Corinth was so full of flaws. But Paul gives thanks for them. He even testifies to the work of the Spirit in the Corinthians. Now, if I was writing a letter to the Corinthian church, I wouldn't begin like that. But when the Apostle Paul is aware of God's gracious working in the hearts of the Corinthians, he is, 
he is demonstrating, well, first of all, he's glorifying God. But he's also demonstrating faith and hope of what God is going to do in the hearts of the Corinthians. And that encourages them as well. So let criticism be in the, the context of love and encouragement. But the reality is, even when we do this, criticism can be tough. It can be hard to criticize someone in a loving way. But again, before doing this, look in the mirror. Look for that log. Look for that four by four. So you can examine your own motives. Are you really seeking their best? Are you really doing this out of love? Are you really doing this for their good and for the glory of God? And although this isn't really the main point here, I, th I think it's helpful to think about for, for the, the perspective of the one who is having the splinter removed. It's uncomfortable to go to somebody and to, to seek to remove the splinter. And it's, it's uncomfortable being the person who is having the splinter removed. So if somebody criticizes you, receive it by God's grace as a grace from God. Think about, about what they're saying to you. And even if they don't come to you in the, the wisest or the, the most loving of ways, then, then by God's grace, listen to what they're saying. It's a, it's a mark of humility to hear what's the criticism of somebody else. Then weigh up the, the matter according to the word of God. Prayerfully consider it. Seek counsel from somebody else and, and ask, do you see this in me? But don't just dismiss it out of hand because of the way that it's being said or because of the person that is saying it to you. May we be people who are, are quick to encourage and quick to receive encouragement. May we be people who are, who are, by God's grace, because we have removed the beams from our eye, able to help others. And may we be eager to help others with this kind of help. So then deal ruthlessly, deal mercilessly with your own sin so that you can see clearly to be able to gently help others. So again, this here is not a, it's not a restriction against all judgment in this passage. This is a restriction of unrighteous judgment. It's a restriction of unrighteous judgment. Jesus is here saying that disciples will not be characterized by engaging in unrighteous judgment. Rather, they will be characterized as those who engage in right judgment. So again, in this passage, Jesus is not forbidding judgment. He's telling us that true disciples judge others mercifully. They judge teachers meticulously. They judge themselves mercilessly. And that their perspective is grounded in the gospel. And so as those who have received mercy, disciples see themselves and they see others clearly so that they can deal with others mercifully. They seek teachers who faithfully proclaim and demonstrate God's mercy. They deal with their own sin by seeking the mercy that only God can give and then becoming instruments of God's mercy by helping others in their sin. As is true for the love of God, as we love others out of the love that God has given us, we show mercy to others out of the mercy that God has given us. And you can only do this when you seek to judge righteously. And you can only seek to judge righteously when your faith is in Jesus Christ, who was judged as guilty in our place. 
It is only through the gospel that you become a disciple. It is only through the gospel that you become a righteous judger. Somebody who is merciful. Someone who is quick to exhibit mercy and to demonstrate mercy. To reflect the character of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we wonder at the gospel. We wonder that you made us who were worthy of your wrath to be the objects of your mercy. Lord, you have poured out mercy upon mercy in our lives, grace upon grace in our lives through the gospel. Lord, you have blessed us infinitely with your with the knowledge of you and with relationship with you. And we look forward to that time when we will will have the knowledge of you that is not limited by our fallen nature. Lord, when we will be able to love you perfectly, when we will be able to love others mercifully. But until that time, Lord, I pray that you would help us to demonstrate through the power of your spirit that we are indeed your disciples as we seek to judge righteously so that we can be as the recipients of your mercy, those who minister mercy to others. For the good of your people, for the building of your church, and for the glory of your name.